Now we don't have any value. Death Sentence. It is I, Hidden, recording once again a solo episode. It's been a while since I've done one of these. Honestly, I've just been waiting for inspiration to strike, but also for my workload to decrease a bit so that I could dedicate the time that I want to one of these episodes. Uh, these episodes are pretty intense to record since it's just me speaking into a microphone. So if you enjoy them, I would really appreciate if you told me so on Twitter or on SoundCloud or our Patreon or maybe even join our Discord channel. I'll put an invite in the comments of this episode. We would love to talk to you more. Don't have to like support us or whatever. You just have to hang around and talk about like cool books and music with us. That's really the main reason that we do this podcast. Without further ado, let's get into this episode's subject. So I've been thinking for a while about the intersection between what's often dubbed as the new weird and fantasy. I think that new weird here is somewhat of a misnomer, seeing as how some of these books that I'm going to reference aren't really new, and seeing as how the new weird can also be seen as kind of like an extension of slipstream or new wave science fiction here's that work again uh new of course there are differences i'm not going to say that philip jose farmer and samuel delaney and osa Guin are completely identical to jeff Undermeer or elvia wilk or these other names in, in the new weird movement but i don't think they are also inherently unlike as those authors themselves will tell you on multiple occasions so, like all genres and classifications, I think it's just a useful tool that we don't have to uh, marry ourselves to, right? We should use it where it's useful, and where it's not, we should not use it. In any case, if you look at the 70s and the 80s, and even beyond, we see a lot of overlap between weird literature and science fiction, right? Science fiction becomes more experimental, whether it's with big releases like Neuromancer or with more um, niche releases like those we've covered in the past by M. John Harrison um, and others of that sort. However, the overlap between the new weird or weird in general and fantasy is less explored, right? And I think it's, quote-unquote, the fault of fantasy in many ways. This tends to be a pretty conservative genre, here not meant in the sense of its politics, although you could successfully argue that the politics are conservative as well, but in the sense of its literary devices. Right? Even good fantasy, even excellent fantasy, tends to have a sort of settled or familiar kind of landscape. Sure, the magic systems change around and the premise for how the world works or evolves can also be changed. But inherently, there is, I would say, more in common between each fantasy novel than there is between mostly every other genre, I would risk to say. Although I could be wrong, of course. So what does fantasy look like when it is weird? Well, 
of course, the main example that I'm going to cite is a controversial one, but one which I stand behind, and that is Brian Catling's Vol series trilogy, right? One could argue that it's not exactly fantasy, but then again, it's not exactly not fantasy, seeing as it does have fantastical elements like angels and magic and uh, zombies and, and sentient nature and, and so on. But I could cite uh, more works if you if you don't want that. I could cite stuff from as early as the uh, the period I was talking about before, the 80s, right? We could talk about, well, even before that, right? Like Roger Zelezny's, some of his weirder books like Creatures of Light and Darkness are definitely fantasy and are definitely weird. Of course, we already mentioned M. John Harrison and his Viriconium, which will be extremely relevant um, to the book that we are about to discuss. And of course, one cannot um, hop over Book of the New Sun, which again is science fiction in many ways, but it's fantasy in others, and the works of um, Moorcock, right? Michael Moorcock. In both of those examples, we see that when fantasy is melded with the weird, it often becomes sci-fantasy, right? Science fiction fantasy, sword and sorcery in the future, if you will kind of like Book of the New Sun and some of the more experimental uh, Moorcock novels. By the way, if you haven't read The Dancers at the End of Time, I very much um, recommend it. It is Moorcock at his weirdest, and it is fantastic. I think I've uh, recommended it on the podcast before. So anyway, these are kind of the spaces that we're operating in, and it's safe to say that you know, f- even given the examples that I just cited, and there are a few more, uh, weird fantasy is not something that you commonly see, and even less so the new weird fantasy, that is, um, odd or experimental fantasy books that have released recently, right? Let's say in the last 15 years or so. There aren't a lot of those. Basically, other than the book that we are about to discuss today, I can think of maybe one or two examples, depending on how you want to read it. So the first one, would be Tad Williams's Shadow March. Yes, that Tad Williams, who wrote like some of fa- Epic Fantasy's most well-recognized series. His Shadow March books are not full weird, but they're definitely weirder, featuring convoluted prophecy and dark pantheons and twists and turns that are not really in keeping with his other style. And then the second one is even less weird, but I still feel it's pretty experimental, and that is Sophia Samatar's work with um, A Stranger in the Londria and its sequel, The Winged Histories. Again, not extremely weird, but spoiler alert, The Winged Histories does have vampires. Um, and the Londria definitely draws from a different well of inspiration than what fantasy is commonly associated with. I'm sure there are other examples. Some of them I know and are just not coming to mind right now, but some of them I obviously don't know. I, I don't know everything. I don't know if you noticed. Um, but but yeah, it's not a very common sort of thing, which is why I had a blast reading K.J. Bishop's The Etched City. I heard about this book because Alan Moore reviewed it. To be clear, he reviewed it a while ago in 2004. I simply uh, stumbled across the name and then I googled it and saw that he, um, sorry, not Alan Moore, Michael Moorcock, of course, um, and, I, and I saw his um, 
review. And in his review, he compares it to uh, J.G. Ballard and M. John Harrison. And the second he does that, I'm pretty much hooked, right? I'm going to read it no matter what. Because uh, you have Moorcock recommending or name-dropping two of the other like extremely good and weird authors of, of their time um, and, and saying this book is like that. So, of course, I was immediately hooked. And let me tell you, this book is phenomenal. So, while I do agree that Viriconium is definitely a touchpoint, in a sense that pretty much all f- weird fantasy books set in sprawling cities are kind of indebted to Harrison's uh, Viriconium, which we should cover at some point. It's just such an undertaking. Um, however, I think this book owes even more to the Book of the New Sun, not so much in its plot, but in the way that the meat of the plot, that is not the revealed textual elements of the plot, but rather the hidden um, semantic, that is meaning layers of the text are hidden underneath the words and are not spelled out for you. Like Book of the New Sun, right? Where every sentence means several things and interacts in several ways with um, other ideas in the books. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not as intricate. This is not about to be like a four-episode or five-episode podcast series about the Edge City, nor does it aspire to be this kind of like epic, sprawling future history. Rather, the Edge City focuses mostly on one city, um, Ashamoil, um, and two characters, well, two protagonists, and a third character that be, uh, that becomes a, a major uh, plot point. Before I do that, I'll say that, before we dive into the plot, I'll say that KG Bishop herself um, is an Australian writer and artist. I just noticed that. And The Edge City was nominated for a World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. And if you listen to a few of the last episodes, we did touch on how the World Fantasy has this knack for like choosing very cool winners um, and also nominees from more esoteric areas of the genre. And this is a fantastic example of that. This is our only full novel, but she's written plenty of short fiction, which I plan on digging into very, very soon. And hopefully, I don't know, there's another novel forthcoming or something like this because The Edge City is really very good. So here is the quote-unquote surface level of The Etched City. Ashamoil is a regional capital sitting on the banks of a river. As such, instead of being your classic European trade hub that a lot of fantasy is based in, this is more of a jungle city. It is um, bordered on one hand by a desert, a very uh, vast one, and on the other by jungle and swamp and savanna. And the city itself, of course, if you think about what we associate with the humidity and heat of the jungle, it is languishing. Right? It is corrupt, stratified, uh, has um, the, the, the historical or technological level of the city is Victorian, so it has horrible slums um, alongside incredibly rich merchant families that control the city with an iron grip. Into this city, um, escape 
our two main protagonists, Gwyn and Raul. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. R-A-U-L-E. They know each other from participating in a failed rebellion that took place, um, I think, like two decades, maybe a bit less, before the main events of the book. They are on the run, they meet again in the desert, and they make their way to Ashamoil. Well, their ways split. And that is very interesting. They they re-meet in the, basically the exposition of the book, which is pretty long. I'd say it's about 50% of the book in the desert, and they kind of get to know each other. They don't really like each other because Raul is a doctor, whereas Gwyn is a gunslinger. So they're kind of at opposite ends in their perspective on violence and human life and so on. But they make an easy alliance and even hint towards a friendship that they might rekindle. But then when they arrive in Ashamble, they split up. Um, their stories are almost entirely separate until, of course, they meet at the end of the book. That is a very interesting dynamic that I don't often see in these kinds of books. So Raoul is working in a hospital in the slums of the city. And she does that because that's her trade. Um, she wants to help the poor people of the city, but she's also obviously motivated by guilt and the sense of failure that she feels following the failed rebellion um, that she was a part of. Uh, she toils in, in that hospital, investigating what is slowly becoming a widespread phenomenon, which is strange and unhealthy births that are taking place in the slums. Specifically, children are being born as hybrids between humans and all sorts of animals, chiefly crocodiles. Uh, the crocodiles also infest the river running through Ashamore. So she's pulling on that thread and trying to understand what is the explanation for these hybrids and what's, what's actually going on here. Meanwhile, Gwyn quickly rises um, as the entourage of basically the guy who runs Ashamoil, or rather runs the most successful um, trading family slash racket slash violent gang. Of course, Gwyn's skills as a gunslinger are invaluable, and he quickly rises up the ranks, um, fully diving into his kind of like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Haberdasher, swashbuckler kind of um, gallivanting, right? So he spends a lot of money on fancy clothes and good blades and pistols and a horse and, and so on and really embraces the um, nihilistic decadence of the etched city. However, um, about a quarter into the book, he is enticed by a work of art depicting himself as a basilisk and the author of this um, illustration which is actually an engraving as a sphinx now seeing as whoever engraved this um, engraving knows what he looks like Quinn assumes that they have been following him and therefore sets to find them as he does so he falls into uh, the city's patterns and um, dives deeper and deeper into its bowels until he finds Bethine Constantine. Honestly, one of the most beguiling and interesting characters that I've read in months now. She is an engraver indeed, but she also seems to be much, much more. Potentially more than human, potentially even divine. And Gwyn and uh, Bethine 
Bethine, Bethine, I'm going to go with Bethine, um, fall into an affair, into a romance. Um, and from there, things start to go very wrong. So this is the text, right? Uh, this is what you read. And from here on out, there's going to be spoilers. The plot um, quickly turns to focus on, on one hand, um, Raoul and her efforts to unravel the mystery of the hybrids, but mainly on Gwyn's work with the family as they go to war with one of their competitors and the fallout from that war. One of the best sections plot-wise in the book is when the... Um, oh, damn, is it the husband? No, it's the wife. Yeah, so they kill um, the wife and the child of someone who um, snitched on them, right? snitched on their gang um, to, the, to the city uh, authorities. And then the wife's uh, spirit inhibits an axe, the axe of, of the guy that was the snitch. And there's this like awesome side plot of the guy like taking out the gang and whenever he slices them, flowers go inside of the cut. And there's a whole showdown with, with Gwyn. It's just fantastic. The writing, like, blow by blow, literally here, but in other places in the book, I mean, scene by scene, is really fantastic. There's a lot of really cool side characters that are never fully explained, like Book of the New Sun, but everything is very rich, very deep. feels like there's a whole history behind it, whether it's this axe-wielding avatar of vengeance or whether it's just a party-goer that has, like, a few words to tell Gwyn or whether it's the nuns that run the hospital that Raoul is part of, or the gang members alongside Gwyn. Everything is very fully realized and really, really well written. But the really interesting part about the book is the subtext. Um, and there are a few subtexts. One, the whole story of the hybrid um, children. Two, Gwyn's own journey away from nihilism and into an acceptance of why life is worth living. And the third, this whole discussion with um, Bethine and who she is. And I'm going to start from that part because this is really at the center of the etched city. The book is called The Etched City. And Bethine is an engraver or an etcher, if you will, of illustrations and as the book um, goes on she starts to talk about where she came from right and and her uh, dreams and how she uh, came to life and it seems as if she um, knows a lot more than she is letting on and that she has more power than she might be willing to divulge so I'm going to read you uh, the first of a few quotes that I want um, to read to you. And this is um, Bethine talking to Gwyn after she um, told him about a few of her dreams of how she came to life. Well, perhaps I don't have a soul. Perhaps that was the part of me that went away on the night I had the dream of flying to the ocean. Perhaps the thing I am doesn't fear a tiger because it, mu it is much stronger than a tiger. And the tiger comprehends. Her words didn't strike him as idle nonsense. Those senses of his that could pick up subtle things were sure of a great mystery behind her surface, like the unrevealed world in her new engravings. We should become wise when we're old. 
She looked past him into the jungle and the water. We should become fathomless richness. So beyond just the excellent tone of phrase of fathomless richness, you can start to see in like Bethine and how she um, reveals but also hides a lot of knowledge. You start to see those Book of the New Sun similarities. Right? Like the line that says, those senses of his that could pick up subtle things will show of a great mystery behind her surface is a classic Gene Wolfe-esque misdirection, right? It's basically telling you, this is not bullshit, right? Like, she is not lying to him, and this is not frivolous. I didn't mistype. There is something deeper here, but then it never tells you what it is, right? Just like Severian encountering someone and saying, this person seemed of great import to me. Yeah, that person is of great import, but what import? Like, who is this guy? Um, and he doesn't tell you, right? Same thing here. And it's not that Wynne is an unreliable nar narrator because it's not told from his perspective, but the secret narrator, which is the author, is not telling you the full picture, instead leaving it tantalizing in front of your face. So as time goes by in the plot, it starts to... The, well, the question is, that is raised is, is Bethine actually creating all of this from scratch? And does, does that explain the weirdness of the city? Um, and the question is never quite resolved but it is used to hold really interesting discussions again full literature so they are not on the surface although there are other philosophical discussions in the book that we'll get to later that are on the surface um, of this tension between desire reality and imagination right? and the book kind of revolves around three people and we'll tie Raoul into this soon um grappling with the way that their desire affects the world. Most importantly, for this point, Gwyn and Bethine's relationship is very carnal in nature. It's not just that they're in love or they're having a relationship. Um, they are desperately in love, right? They are infatuated. They're head over heels. Um, and they express that love uh, physically, right? Um, and then Bethine's body which is, again, the body of potentially the creator of Gwyn, for sure, and also of potentially everything else, is, is a very strong site for um, this meeting of powers, of, of desire and imagination, and of creative energies. Because remember, she is an artist, right? She's creating these engravings and so on. Let me read you an example. That's real, she said. The flesh is reality. It holds our memory far more faithfully than our minds do. Madam, what in the world? He erupted. Then his voice died, for her face came close to his, and he smelled her breath. Her mouth was a censer, from which a double odor flowed. The salubrious air of a rose garden besmirched with the gore of a fresh kill. Right, so this idea of the exposed wire, the danger... The, the physical carnality of the body of the artist, both intoxicating and inviting, like a rose garden, but then also full of the scent of blood. And note that this doesn't only just describe her, Bethany herself, but also the etched city in general and its languishing humidity and corruption that we paraphrased. Okay, cool. So this is one level um, that things are 
uh, super interesting. But the, uh, the second one, so I'm going from the third to the first, right? The second one is Gwyn's journey. So Gwyn starts the book as this happy-go-lucky and extremely cynical um, gunslinger, right? And his thing is, you know, I don't need anything. I can be completely independent in this world. And all I need to do is look out for number one. This is, of course, a reaction to the failed rebellion that he took part of, but also an honestly held belief, right? He, it's not just like a frivolous sort of teenager angst. It is someone who lives his life, you know, by being um, not exactly selfish, but self-centered for sure. And as the book progresses and he comes into contact with the power of creating others, the power of influencing the world, the power of not being aloof, through his relationship with Bethine, he starts to understand how he might maintain that self-centered look wherein, wherein he is at the center of existence, basically. Um, and the ability to actually um, interface with others. And that journey happens on several levels. One, as I said, with this affair with Bethine, where he's finally enticed by something, and then he loses her. By the way, Bethine, at the end of the book, simply disappears. She, she goes somewhere, perhaps where she came from, perhaps to a higher plane, perhaps she tires of her creation. But not before all of her engravings become twisted and violent and um, nightmarish. Keep that in mind before we talk about role. Um, but also because of his work with the gang, right? Um, he starts the book by saying, there's nothing I won't do for money. And through the story of the gang's rise and then fall, he witnesses atrocities and is punished for them, right? Um, by said axemen and by others um, in the book. And he finds his limits, right? He finds the things that he's not willing to do, but also the people that he is willing to protect. And let me read you a quote. I have come to believe that we steer our individual spheres of being through the specter of possible worlds via the choices we make, the acts we perform. Most people stick to known routes and therefore cannot travel far. They live too modestly and perhaps too privately. Only by being strange can we move. For strange acts... Sorry, for strange acts cause us to be rejected by whatever normality we have offended and to be propelled towards a normality that can better accommodate us. So first of all, that's a really, <laughs> just like a really good quote about why the wheel is so interesting and what it enables us to do, right? By being strange, we break out of the shackles of our own sphere as we know it and are forced into new places, right? new modes of thought, new ways of being, new ways of talking to each other. But this also describes Gwyn as he dives deeper and deeper into the strangeness of both Bethine but also of the city itself. It's magic and how it works. He's forced to face you know, the differences between him and others but also the similarities. There's kind of like a dreamlike feeling to a lot of his journeys well he abuses drugs several times and psychedelic ones during the book but also when it's not happening it has that like when he's not on drugs it has this like faint wrongness to it 
which kind of goes back to a lot of the other books that we've discussed. Olontria does that as well, the new sun for sure. It's weirdness that is not high weirdness, right? There are no like dragons coming from the sky or wizards casting life-changing magic. It's all in the background. For example, in a fair, he meets a guy with a flower in his navel. Readers of the Book of the New Sun, please do not get too excited about comparisons to the green man. And he decides to pull the flower and he's, he assumes that it's just a, a, a prank or that the flower is not actually connected to the guy. But he ends up like tearing his visera out with the flower and killing him. And he's very shocked by the fact that it happens. Um, and, and a lot of it is how th- these shocks and these exposures to the weird transform him into someone new. Now, of course... This raises questions about his relationship with Bethine, because if Bethine created him, as is indeed hinted at all through the book, then what is she doing in her affair with him? Right? She remember she instigated the affair. Right? Uh, she engraved him. She sent out the bat signal, so to speak. So, is she really innocent in all of this? Is it really just an infatuation, or is she working something else? Is Gwyn perhaps? the protagonist of the world that she created? Is she experimenting with him? Is she seeing whether her strangeness will transform him? Or is she just an uncaring god, basically, that Gwyn just happens to come across? The god question is very interesting because some of the best scenes in the book are Gwyn and his friend, the Reverend, a disgraced priest who used to be able to do proper miracles, but now cannot find God and spends his days drinking and um, having sex with uh, sex workers in which he, for some reason, decides to fall in love. They don't reciprocate, but he loves them. Um, they argue theology. Um, they, they sit um, at a local uh, drinking hall and, and drink away their souls, and the Rev is trying to save Gwyn's soul and offer him, basically, an alternative to Bethine. Right, um, an alternative to a god that is feral and violent and vicious, um, other a god of love and of caring and of family. At the end, Gwyn is struck down. Spoilers, major spoilers. Gwyn is struck down by the Axeman, and the Rev finally finds the miracle inside of him again and resurrects him. And it's a beautiful, beautiful scene where he is standing over him and. Uh, regaling him with with all of his wasted potential. And this is what he says, some of what he says. God seeks lovers. God is not tame. God is the dancing stork in the water meadow and the tiger in the night. The loneliness, the ache for the lost, that causes dogs to bark at nothing and the whole species of the crocodile to do nothing but kill and sleep for a hundred million years. You must have known it when you lost your woman. You had courage of a sort and you loved beauty. You loved God's world. Right? So this is a eulogy, even though he ends up resurrecting Quinn. But the tensions in this paragraph are super interesting because on one hand, God is not tame, right? God is, um, it is fell, it is wild. And, and Bethine is, is explicitly mentioned here, right? When you lost your, your woman. You must have known it when you lost your woman. So she is somehow wrapped up in this existence of God. But this God is not just fell. It's not just about the crocodile killing. It's also seeking lovers and the ache for the lost and so on um, and about loving beauty. 
and all of the conversations that Gwyn has with the Rev um, raise this question, right? The tension between God's ferocity and size and overpowering nature, but also his tenderness and the love that we feel towards God and that God feels towards us. And it's a super interesting discussion presented in a way, interestingly, very different from Book of the New Sun, which as we've regaled you with before is a Christian analogy or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Metaphor. Um, but here, it's less that Gwyn is Christ or uh, anybody is like a direct parallel to some sort of biblical figure, but, but more that when people find themselves in a situation of weirdness, a lot of what they seek is the belonging of an ordered reality, right? And both Gwyn and the Reverend are kind of screwed, right? Because it appears that the creator of the reality in which they find themselves is very capricious. But through that capriciousness, through the influence of Beth Ein and the engravings and everything that she's doing to the city, Gwyn emerges a changed man. The ending is very abstract, where Gwyn ends up wandering the world until one day in a distant city, so hinted it's like hundreds of years later, so he's somehow immortal, maybe with in his encounter with her. Anyway, he loses a duel, but instead of dying... Because the Reverend brought him back from the live from the from the dead, right? So maybe he lives forever. He is picked up by this well, a dragon. Actually, I told you there's no dragons, but I kind of lied. With with this like world splitting shriek, again hinting that Bethheim came back, right, to grab her lover and transport him out of this mundane world and into something far stranger and more um, primal. And here at the end, we find ourselves returning to Raoul. The book itself, on purpose, I think, does not resolve the issue of the hybrids, nor does it connect it to, well, connect it directly to Gwyn's storyline. The storylines overlap, sorry, because the son of the leader of the gang ends up being hospitalized in Raoul's hospital. And it's very clear that if he dies, then the entire gang is completely fucked. Um, and Gwyn implores Raoul to save the kid, even though she despises his father. Instead, what she does is she kills the gang leader, right? Instead of um, saving the son. Therefore, also saving Gwyn without, well, besmirching her morality in one way, although she does murder him, so she, she does drop like the um, good doctor act near the end of the book. Or, or rather not an act, she also goes under a transformation that moves her closer towards um, violence and feralness, right? As Gwyn moves away from those ideas into something more complete, she reconnects with um, the fire in her and the morality that perhaps fueled the rebellion that she was part of, right? She, she refines the need sometimes for violence in service of a goal. But the question of the hybrids is never resolved. There are dreams of some sort of crocodile god coming up from the river and impregnating one of the women some of the children might be like, you know, the beasts of the apocalypse or some sort of omen, but they all die, like usually minutes or maybe hours after childbirth. Um, but it's obvious that, and again, in a very Book of the New Sun sort of way, Bishop uses the hybrids to point at everything that is wrong and unnatural and diseased at the base 
of this city. Kind of like Ishmael in the war and his um, deformities um, hinting at the sin, the sin of colonialism. The hybrids and their monstrous nature and their inability to survive hints at you know the social injustice at the base of the edge city. And Raoul is the one that experiences this injustice the most, right? Both because of where she works, but also the people that she's exposed to when she works there, which are the people who live in the slums um, and suffer under the uh, you know hierarchy of the edge city. And interestingly enough, I didn't choose any quotes from Raoul because I think her story is less quotable. Not because it's less interesting. Far from it. I think she's a fantastic character and her storyline is, is really fascinating. But it's less in your face, right? None, none of this book is in your face. Except maybe the guy with the axe that grows flowers out of cuts. That, that guy rules. And is also a bit more um, explicit. But her um, part is even more subtle. Interesting enough, she ends the book by going back into the desert and linking up with one of the nomad tribes. And this is maybe where I can um, read you a final quote. In the nomad's land, which was a land of lines, many lines, with spaces such being incidental filler, a negative concept, Raoul occasionally wondered whether she had escaped from a doomed world, escaped from nowhere to somewhere. An equal number of times, she wondered whether she was part of something left by a world that had birthed itself into a new, more gracious state. A state behind, beyond apprehension by that which remained. Dry, linear as bone, as the veins in a dead leaf. So this idea of, of the Edge City as a cocoon, and Bethain says that it's a cocoon at some point, or that she's in a cocoon, building her cocoon. And then when it falls away, supposedly, you would expect to find ascendancy, right? Rebirth, rapture, a city made better. But Raoul knows the lie of it all, right? She has seen the hybrids that perhaps crawl out of Bethine's engravings, etchings. And if they do, they expose the lie of her supposed ascendancy. Because, yes, she might have built a cocoon and now she's back where she came from. But on the way, she caused untold suffering and pain, right? So it kind of exposes that underbelly of the transformation. And when contrasted with, with Gwyn and his movement from supposedly a good movement, right, from gunslinger to something more, something uh, more complete, it kind of calls into question how heroic the heroic journey actually was. And what is left in the wake of Gwyn's um, self-exploration with the creator of the um, reality in which they both find themselves. Okay. That was a lot. I feel like even though that was a lot, we only scratched the surface of this book. It really is intriguing. There is a lot happening beneath the surface on the side of the worlds, if that makes sense. Again, kind of that feeling you get when you read the Book of the New Sun and Viriconium and so on. It is really a masterful book. It's so hard to pull this style off because it can often seem just contrived or like puzzles that the, nov the novelist is 
looking for you to fill in and figure out. And that's really not the case here. The idea of all these questions, there are many more like two astronomer characters that hint towards like a multiverse kind of thing. The animals themselves that we didn't even discuss, like the crocodiles and the monkeys and the flamingos and so on. The river, um, the slave trade, which is a part of the setting. The braves, the young braves and the like dualist kind of society. Lots more to discuss. Everything is aimed towards making you consider the deeper questions at hand about transformation, journeys, creation, the responsibility that we have for each other, for the things that we make, for our passions, for our desires and the ramifications. And that's a sign of a true, really good novel, especially of a really great, weird novel. Well, like the quote said, the strange is not for strangeness sake but rather to move us out of the common sphere that we are familiar with into something else something more something deeper uh, so again if any of this appeals to you please do check out um, kj bishops the etched um, city and uh, make sure you dive into this really uh, one-of-a-kind novel now, for music, I had a lot of back and forth on what to play. On the other hand, on one hand, sorry, I'm drawn towards something uh, calmer, right? Or maybe more ambient that will connect to a lot of these like weird sort of themes that I, I discussed on this episode and that the book raises. But on the other hand, we already did like a few more um, quiet sort of... Um, music selections and that's not why you come to death sentence right uh, we're all about metal man and skulls and things on fire i don't know i've never been like a big metal aesthetic guy so not sure which uh, imagery to cite here so i'm going to um square the circle um and play something that is both ambient and strange and also very heavy I'm going to play a track off of Agriculture's The Circle Chant. Agriculture, as they say, is an ecstatic black metal band inspired by the glory of the ocean. If you set aside your cynicism for a second and you try to take what they say on face value as you listen to the music, that term ecstatic black metal actually describes them pretty damn well. It's black metal in the sense that you have terminal picking and blast beats and really like pained and cold abrasive vocals but there is a jubilance um exuberance sorry and a, a jubilee that's the word i was looking for i just meshed those two words up to it that is really hard to resist it's like something colorful but still violent exploding into your ears um with every minute so uh we're gonna play the self-titled track the circle chant from agriculture's the circle chant please enjoy and i will see you next time (laughs) 